Tonight we're going to uh, turn our attention to a story in the Old Testament. You guys will be familiar with it, I am sure. Uh, the title of the lesson is of the ten or the two, and so those, and usually the Sunday night crowd, is very familiar with the stories in the Bible. You probably have long since figured out that that is, that is about the uh, spies in Numbers 13 and 14. I'd like for you to turn, if you will, to Numbers 13. And this one section of these two chapters, the latter part of 13, the beginning of 14, is where I'm going to spend by far the bulk of the lesson. So it'll be easy to keep up with there, although I will turn to some other, or at least mention some other passages. Welcome everybody who's here tonight. Um, it warmed up, I think, to about a balmy 17, and so we, we should all be thankful for that. But uh, glad you're here. And tonight, as we look at this story, I want us to really consider it in light of our theme. And I'm going to try not to beat the theme to death on, you know, in this lesson. But at the same time, I really am looking at it from the standpoint of, well, let me, let me just say it like this. When you are baptized, when you become a Christian, as we said several times on Sunday morning, we'll continue to say throughout the year, you are a saint. You are holy from that point. And really what the Bible is doing, what God is doing, is calling us to live um, the life that, of what we are. We are saints. We are holy ones. Now having said that, I believe a Christian obeys the gospel, anyone who truly responds to the Lord's call, a Christian obeys the gospel, he or she is baptized because they believe that salvation, the reward in heaven that we've already spoken of tonight, is real. Uh, as Ed prayed about it a moment ago, we, we really don't know what it's going to be like. We can't imagine it. It's beyond us, and yet we believe it. Or we would not obey God, we would not ever begin this life of a Christian. So it's real to us. And we believe that it is available to those who trust God for it. That it is not something that you can't have, that it's only perhaps, as so many things in life are, therefore those who just have kind of a special ability. The NBA All-Star game today. I would love to have the ability to jump around you know, and do all that stuff. It's poetry and motion to me, but I never did and I never will have that ability. But being in heaven is something I have the ability to, to do. I can be there. I can be a Christian. And when we're thinking as we are this year, not just kind of sliding by by the skin of my teeth or whatever terminology you want to use, as we were saying this morning, that whole idea of perfecting holiness, I believe that Christians believe that's possible. I know I did. Um, you know, thinking this month especially about obeying the gospel back in 1977, all the way back there. But I know as I looked at that guy in the mirror, literally, I really believed he could change. I really believed he could be a different person. And because I thought I could achieve that, and I, I don't think I put it in words of achieving holiness or anything like that back then. It was just change. But I believe it was possible. Now, having said all of that, why are not all members of the church then going to be saved? How come every person that, you know, ever begins that journey, why are they not saved in the end? And you, you can do a simple reading of a number of passages in the Bible and see that's easily the case. Matthew 25, the, the whole parable of the ten virgins, that's the kingdom of heaven is likened to. 
And five are ready when Jesus comes, and five are not. And there are a lot of passages like that. In 1 Peter chapter 4, and verses 17 through 19, where the Bible says, judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it begin at us, then, you know, it's just a rhetorical question. Then where would you think the ungodly in the center would be if judgment begins at God's house? Or verse 18, if the righteous are scarcely saved, or if you have another translation, if the righteous with difficulty are saved, then we shouldn't look at it like it is something that requires no effort to be saved. No, it does require effort. I've got to put forth some effort like we've been talking about. I've got to make that journey up the mountain, if you think of the picture this morning. And I believe the story, if you're looking, if you're looking at Numbers 13, you probably know this story well, but I, I think it illustrates. Because here you have a group of people probably over two million of them, that God brought out of Egypt and fully intended, said to them back in Exodus 3, um, you can have this land, you will have this land that flows with milk and honey, just go take it. And I believe God fully intended for that whole generation of people to come into the promised land, but they won't. And as you look at Numbers, as you, as you look at this story in Numbers 13 and, and 14, you realize that they've gotten right to the brink of it. They're right there. It's kind of like the person, it's not the individual that's out there in the world somewhere, has never picked up a Bible or seriously thought about Jesus, and they're just, as we would say, so far away from the truth or so far away from heaven if Jesus were to return. We're not talking about that person here. No, we're talking about the individual like you or me that's sitting on the pew that's right there. We've got it. It's in our grasp. We know we can go to heaven. We know that's possible if. And that's exactly what you see here in Numbers. I mean, the Lord called for a representative of each of the twelve tribes. You can see that in the opening verses here. Look at with me, if you will, at verses 2 and 3. Send thou men, God said to Moses, that they may search the land of Canaan. Go do some reconnaissance, so to speak. Which I give unto the children of Israel. Notice that. Is something that was a done deal. I'm giving this to you. Send a representative of every tribe of their fathers. You shall send a man. And notice, every one of them a ruler among them. Notice again in verse 3. Moses, by commandment of the Lord, sent them from the wilderness of Param, all those men who were heads of the children of Israel. I want you to understand something here. That when we talk about this story, and when we talk about ten of these twelve guys, and we say a lot of things about them, I want you to notice that they were the top. They were the rulers, the head, the leaders. We're not just talking about, go get the worst bum in the tribe of Gad and throw him to the wolves here. No, God called for the best of each tribe to go into the land do the reconnaissance of the land that he's telling them yet again that I give to you. So I liken that to somebody like me or you. Not that I'm the best. Don't misunderstand that. But I'm older now. And I've been at it for a long time. I'm not 17 when I obeyed the gospel. I'm nearly 57 here in a few months. I've been at it the great bulk of my life. I'm not the person that picks up a Bible, nor are you. Usually people that gather on Sunday night, you, you're not a person who pick up the Bible and say, I wonder what this is all about. You know what it's about. 
You know the things that are in here. When we turn to Numbers 13 and 14, this is not a surprising passage to you. You're familiar with it. And that's who we are. Now, why is it then, if that's the case, why is it that some people, when the blessing is right there, they won't have it in the end? And that's scary to me. I hope it is to you, because God would have us to look at it and say, you know, this is not something you get for nothing. This is something that you have to be of the right mindset. You have to be of the right diligence, like the passage that was read for us a moment ago from Second Peter 1. These things have to be in you and abound. And you know that. Well, they did choose these 12. And the 12 did go in and they did do the reconnaissance, if you will, to use the military term. They spied out the land. And they did bring their report back. And what they basically came back and said is, you know, it's everything God said it was going to be. If we were to go back to Exodus 3, and for sake of time, I'm not going to do that tonight. But they were right there. And God said to them, it's a beautiful land, it's a wonderful land, it's flowing with milk and honey, it's got everything in it, and I'm going to give it to you. I'm just going to give it to you. You're my people, and it's yours. And they came back, and basically, as they said, you know, it's everything he said it was going to be. Look down at verse 21 with me, if you will. Exodus, uh, I mean Exodus, Numbers 13 and beginning in verse 21. They went up and they searched the land from the wilderness of Zin unto Rahab as men came to Hamath. And they ascended by the south and they came unto Hebron where, of course, and he goes through all of this. But notice down in verse 23, they came unto the brook of Eshkel. They cut down from there a branch with one cluster of grapes. And this has always gotten me. And they bore it between two of them on a staff, and they brought of the pomegranate and of the figs. I did some reading years ago because, you know, I was looking at this and I was thinking, you know, a cluster of grapes. I mean, man, one cluster of grapes, you'd have to be talking about grapes that are probably that big around. <laughs> you know, one grape you could pick up and eat like an orange. And are there grapes anywhere in the world that grow like that? Well, you know, if you do a little reading and you go home and check me on this, in the right climate... In that part of the world, you can have huge grapes. One cluster of grapes can be humongous. And there are ancient carvings and so forth that really show this, where literally you could take a cluster of grapes and put it on a stick between two people, and they'd heft it up on their shoulders and walk along with it. In other words, it was a land that was just unbelievable in riches. It abounded in fruit, and every, just like God said. And so they brought it back, and of course they come back with the report, and if you'll notice as it goes on to say here, they, uh, uh, begin with me in verse 26, they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel to the wilderness of Paran to, Reda, to uh, Kadesh, and they brought back word unto them and to all the congregation, and they showed them the fruit of the land, and they told them, they tell Moses, we came into the land where you sent us, and surely it flows with milk and honey. In other words, it's everything God said it was. Now, unfortunately, as you continue to read here, even though it is everything God said it was, go down to chapter 14 for a moment and read with me to, in verses 7 and 8. They spoke unto all the company of the children of Israel, and they said, The land that we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. It is better than anything that any of us have ever imagined. Because go southward, even into Egypt, even along the Nile River, 
and you are not going to see the riches of Israel. It is just the most beautiful part of the world in that part of the world. Now notice verse 8. If the Lord delight in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. It is a land that flows with milk and honey. Now, go back with me to chapter 13, and they're reporting this to Moses. And you'll notice they're saying it's a land, verse 27 again, a land that flows with milk and honey. Here's the proof. Here's the fruit of it. Now, notice the first word of verse 28. Nevertheless. Okay, so what's the problem? God sent you into this land. He chose the best of each tribe. The strongest, the heads, the rulers, the leaders, they sent them in, God sent them into the land to spy out, to do the reconnaissance, come back and tell tell the people what you see. It is everything God said it would be, nevertheless. Why are we like that? Why is it that we read something in the Bible, and and I, I know that you have seen this perhaps You or I have been guilty of this where we see something in the Bible, we read something in the Bible, we hear someone read it, we hear someone preach it, and in our mind we're thinking, nevertheless. But, and notice as they go on here, as they report, but, nevertheless, verse 28, the people are strong that are dwelling in the land. The cities are walled and very great, and moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. Yeah, they're strong, they're powerful. Kind of like Pharaoh? And the Egyptians, they're strong, powerful people. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. And there's the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites. They're in the mountains. And the Canaanites are dwelling by the sea, by the the coast of Jordan. And Caleb is like, whoa, wait a minute, guys. Hold on a minute. Caleb stilled the people. And you can just hear this interjection here. You know, the report is being given and they're getting carried away talking about the enemies that are there. And Caleb is like, wait, guys, wait. And so Caleb still the people before Moses and said, let's go up at once. It's everything God said it was. Let's go up at once. Let's take it. Let's possess it. God has already given it to us. We are well able to overcome it. Notice that phrase. Yeah, there's all these enemies. Yeah, there are the people of Anak, the giants and so forth there. We are well able to take it. But notice verse 31. But the man that went up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people. They are stronger than we. How is that? That sounds exactly like what they said when their backs were against the Red Sea and Pharaoh's chariots were charging down. Sounds exactly like that. You guys, a few months ago, you saw the Red Sea open up at God's command, and swallow a whole army at God's command. How in the world can you say an enemy of God is strong? But they did. And verse 32 says, And they brought up an evil report of the land. Now notice how it starts out. It's a good land. It's great. Here's the fruit. We brought back this fruit to show you. It's wonderful. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. By verse 32, they have talked themselves into saying, it's no good. We don't want it. We can't have it. No way we can take it. And so they go on here and they say, the land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eats up the inhabitants. That's an incredible statement to me. 
But it eats up the inhabitants thereof, and all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, so we were in their sight. And so as they look at the land, it starts out with the land is wonderful, it's beautiful, and God has said we can have it, but we can't. Because there's no way we can win this battle. Now, we're looking at this, and it's an old story, and I understand all of that. But I want us to think about us. Here am I. I'm baptized. I I obey the gospel because I believe it. I, I believe that this crazy kid, you know, that used to do this and that and so forth, can be a Christian. And I start preaching because I really believe this stuff. And then I start facing life. I know the blessing is there. Just like Ed said a few moments ago, I know it's there. I believe it. I believe in heaven. And I believe that heaven is available at the end of my life. But now I'm not looking at heaven. I'm not looking at the pleasant land, the promised land, the land of milk and honey. I'm looking at life and all the giants in my life. And I can't beat this, and I can't beat that, and this is too strong for me. And I can't overcome this, and I can't overcome that. And that's what happened to them. So the blessing was right there. What holds us back? And I want us to continue to explore that. And this won't be a deep psychological probe of their minds or anything like that. Just some things I think we can see. And I hope we think of ourselves as we're reading through this. Because we're held back. In a very similar fashion. I believe we are held back, if not totally so that we quit. If not, you know, some people are held back, they never obey the gospel. They're kind of like I was sitting in front of Dale the year before I obeyed the gospel. I can't do it. I, I believe, yes, I believe in God. And I believe this is the truth, but I can't do it. It's just too much. I've already done too much. There are too many ways of life, habits, thought processes, etc., etc. There's just no way. I'll never, never be able to live the life of a Christian. And, of course, Dale keeps coming back with, God will help you. God will be with you. With God's help. And that's exactly the point here, isn't it? If we were talking about them going in, maybe they couldn't. Maybe none of them could stand up to a giant. But David stood up to a giant because David had God to help him. And that's where they needed to be. What holds us back? Is it really just a lack of faith? And I think a lot of people say, yeah, it's a lack of faith. Is it, is it a lack of courage, maybe? Cowardice, even. Now, before you're quick to answer that, I'm not a coward. Well, neither was Peter a coward when it meant charging a mob with a sword. But when it meant standing up for Jesus in a crowd of people who are all talking another way, Have you ever been in a situation where if you said anything like this isn't right or I'm not going to do that or I'm not going along with this or I don't want to be part of that or, you know, I don't feel comfortable with this, you'd be the lone dog in the pack. Is it cowardice? Lack of courage? Is it the way we see ourselves? I think it stands out in chapter 13. No telling how many countless sermons have been preached from the end of chapter 13. We were in our own sight as grasshoppers. We knew we'd be crushed. And I was a sadistic little kid sometimes. It was fun to kill a grasshopper. I'm just telling you, being honest with you. 
And the reason it was is because when you stomped it, it crushed, it cracked. We were in our own sight. Yeah, I know some of you think that's hilarious. But, but you know, I did that. I'd be more like the Buddhist today. But I did that then. And the point is, we were in our own side as grasshoppers. We looked at these giants, they just step on us and crush us like a grasshopper. Is it the way we see ourselves? I cannot see myself rising above the crowd. I cannot see me going against what everybody else thinks. I cannot see me standing for what's right. The lack of encouragement, perhaps, from other people, which is very important. You notice as they came back here and they gave the report, you see that in this passage, and we'll touch upon it. But we need to encourage each other. We need to be that support group for one another. We need to let each other know we believe in, I believe in, you know, and I, you're doing good, and I'm, you know, it's great, and it's really helping me. The better you do, the more it helps me. We need to hear that, and we need to say that to people. We need encouragement from each other. God talks about it. And think about the word, I won't really explore it tonight, but think about the word encouragement and notice courage in it. We need to encourage other people. Because I don't always have the courage to do what I need to do. But sometimes I have the courage because somebody else believes in me and believes that's what I will do. And I live up to it. And that's the point. It might be all of those things. It might be a combination of any of them. It might be a whole lot more. But let's just look at these people for a moment. First of all, there's no question they had an inferiority complex, as we would say today. Really what they had was what psychologists call self-depreciation. You know, some people appreciate themselves too much. You know, like I'm just the best there ever was, and let me tell you about it. But many people are self-depreciating. And I believe maybe it begins with humility in some people. And humility is advantageous. Blessed are the poor in spirit. God would have us to be humble because humility will cause us to bow ourselves before God and acknowledge the fact that I need God. You know, like 1 Peter chapter 5 and uh, beginning at the end of verse 5 where he says, God resists the proud, but He gives grace or favor to the humble. And then He says, humble yourselves, verse 6, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. And then He says in verse 7, casting all your care, that is your concern. And maybe in a situation like this, the concern you have that you're just not able by yourself to do this. Cast it on God. That's a good thing. But when it goes beyond that, and the person begins to feel, regardless of what God says, I can't. I mean, think about it. How many times in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, does God remind us, I am with you? Hebrews chapter 13, I will never leave you or forsake you. Ever. I'm with you. I'm going to be with you. And yet here am I, and I'm looking at a situation and I'm saying, I just can't. Well, that's gone beyond humility. That's gone to a level of self-depreciation that says, I can't because even though God says He will be with me, maybe He'll be with that guy over there or with her, but He won't be with me. And that's just not right. That's impugning God, as a matter of fact. The attitude needs to be. 
No, I can, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens Philippians 4, verse 13. And there certainly is fear here. We look at them and we see what they say. We saw it in verse 28. You know, they were afraid. The cities are walled and the men are very great. The soldiers are mighty. Verse 33, they're like giants and we're like grasshoppers. We see that. We see the fear. Look at chapter 14 and verse 3. And you can see the fear taking over here. Wherefore has the Lord, why has the Lord brought us into this land? To fall by the sword? Just to die? I mean, why did we have to go through everything we went through just to come out here and die? And so our wives and our children will be as, as prey to these people. Wasn't it better for us just to return to Egypt? We've been saying that, haven't we? I mean, we know the story, and they've been saying it again and again. We're thirsty. It'd been better if we stayed in Egypt. We're hungry. It should be, you know, it would have been better if we were just slaves in Egypt. They've been saying it again and again and again. And what's happening here is their fear is taking over. It's, it's just gripped them. And it's holding them so that every situation that comes, their first response is fear. And I'll tell you, if you've ever known that, and I know some of you are just like me, and you know what it is to be a coward, and if you've done that and you've been there, you know, the point is, your first re- you don't even think anymore. You're just scared. And your first response is fear. And you don't even really consider the fact that maybe... You know, you could stand up to this bully or whatever it might be. You're just scared. And that's these people. I mean, man, they're, they're emotionally overcome with their fear. We're going to see how far in just a second, but let's go on. Fear is a natural result, though, of not having faith in God. It's a natural result of that self-depreciation we were just talking about. It's a natural result of a person not believing that he or she is worth the blessing that God wants to give them. And it's easy to happen. It can easily happen. I don't see myself as deserving any blessing, as worth any blessing from God. No, I think sometimes, and I mean this, I think sometimes if the idea of being a Christian was when you come to that humility of saying, I've sinned, if the way to go to heaven is they take you out and beat you like a dog, that some of us would look at that and say, well, yeah, that's what I deserve. But for God to say, you deserve that. But what I'm going to do is forgive you and bless you and help you the rest of your life so you can go to heaven and have what you can't even imagine, we look at that and we say, Me? Why do I deserve that? Why does God think I am worth that? And I'll tell you why. Because you are His child. And He loves you. And He created you not to be beaten like a dog and not to be in hell, but to be in heaven with Him. That's why you're worth they couldn't see that. They looked at themselves. They were overcome with fear. They just couldn't see it. And there's a pessimism about these people. And I'm not going to take the time. I did it a few months ago as I looked at the ten times of their complaining. But there's a pessimism about these people that every situation they get in, they think the worst. Now, I understand that. I'm inclined to be that way. You know, it's just, oh, this is horrible. This is terrible. And they're pessimistic. 
And there's a real negative spirit that just pervades these people so that every single situation they get into that it has any difficulty, it's just automatically, you know, the end of the story for these people. That's the way they see it. And God keeps saying to these people, lift your eyes up, look at what I've got for you, go, in the, go look at the land. It's yours. I'm giving it to you. They can't see it. They're just too negative. Read with me, if you will, here a little bit. Look, go back at verse, uh, to verse 30 in chapter 13. When Caleb stilled the people and he told the people it was a wonderful place, let's go, let's go up at once, man. Let's run in there and take the land. It's great. Yeah, and you can imagine that. You look at a guy like Caleb, he's, he's how old here? Maybe 20-something at this point. We don't know exactly. But he's a fairly young guy, and yet all he's ever known, his whole childhood he was a slave, and he was the son of a slave. And his whole life was, go out here in this mud pit and work till you drop dead. And now all of a sudden he's got a chance to go into a land that flows with milk and honey, with grapes as big as an orange. Man, let's go now! As fast as we can get in there. That was Caleb. But that wasn't the people, verse 31. The men that went up with him said, We are not able. We're not strong enough. We can't. We just can't. And I can't in these people has replaced every bit of I can do all things with God who is on my side. And no matter how many times God gave them water from a rock, no matter how many times God rained manna or quail from heaven, no matter how many times God parted a Red Sea and destroyed their enemies, no matter how many times God followed them in a cloud or a pillar of fire to remind them, I am with you. They can't see it. Okay, but how about you, Michael? Can you see it? I have to admit to you, there have been many times in my life where I couldn't see it either. And you have to make yourself form some habits where you start thinking about, well, God was there. You know, I remember that time. I thought I was going to die in that time. God was there. And I remember that thing, and I remember that situation, and boy, I didn't see how in the world it would ever work out, and God was there. And then there's the whole idea of where I came from. All my background, and, and a lot of you share that with me. Some of you are blessed to grow up in a home where you know, your parents were Christians, etc., etc., but not everybody here went through that. And you think, and I found the truth, because God was there. And you start looking at it like that, and the point would be, you come away with that, and you say, you know, Michael, when was God not there? And if He was there, He is going to be there. Now, that's hard for me sometimes. There are a lot of reasons why it is, and I'm not going to go into that. But that's what God is saying to these people. But you see, it turns into just impugning God. I want you to go back with me to Numbers 14, because this, this really gets me here. When they're, you know, and let's start reading in verse 1 here. All the congregation lifted up their voice and they just cried. I mean, literally, they're just weeping. At the, at the report that there's giants in the land and all of that. They just cried. And the people wept that night. You ever been so emotionally upset you literally cried all night long? I know some of you have. They cried all night long because they did not believe they could have it. They'd come all this way. They're out in the middle of a desert. 
And where do they go? You can't go back. I mean, you might say, well, you ought to go back. You can't go back. There's nothing to go back to in Egypt, and we can't go there. Where are they going to go? What are they going to do? You ever been at a point in your life where you just honestly didn't know what in the world you were going to do? That's where they are. They cried all night. And all the children of Israel, it says, just murmured against Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation and unto them, would God that we had died in the land of Egypt. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. That's a horrible thing. When you look back on a situation in life, a train hits your car and you're three years old, like life happened to me. I came away with an injury that gives me headaches, and a lot of you people know that. I can't tell you the number of times I wish I died in that car wreck. Because you reach that point, and they're at that point. Would God we had died in this wilderness when we thought we were going to die of thirst or thought we were going to die of food, maybe that would have been better than dying when a giant steps on you like a grasshopper. And then they charge God. And why has the Lord brought us unto this land to fall by the sword? They charge God. They impugn God. You think about this, and maybe you're inclined to say, man, these people, have I ever been like that? Have I ever looked at a situation in my life and said, what is God doing to me? Why has God brought me into this situation and done this to me? The same thing they're doing here. They're impugning God, they're charging God. They're not saying, I know all things are going to work together for good. God is going to take care of us. God's going to help us. They're not saying that. No, they're saying God, in some sadistic, twisted way, brought us out of slavery, out here to die. He should have just left us alone. The emotionalism is unbelievable in this story. They're, they're unbelief. Go with me to the book of Hebrews for a moment, and the writer describes... The lack of belief, the lack of faith. And I, and I was looking at this last night again. <laughs> I don't tell how many times I've looked at it. But I was looking at this last night again, and I was just really thinking about these people as I read it. And when you look at this, and start with me, I'm going to kind of take it out of order here, but start with me down in verse 17. When the writer says, but with whom was he, speaking of God, grieved for 40 years? Was it not with them that had sinned? whose carcasses fell in the wilderness. And to whom did he swear that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. But go back with me earlier in the story, and this is the part that really gets me. Look at verse 7. As the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the provocation, in the day of temptation or testing in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, tested me, and they proved me, and they saw my works for 40 years. Don't be like that. Don't be the kind of person whose first inclination is to say, God doesn't love me. God will save you, but He won't save me. My sins are too great. What, what, no matter what it is you've got to say, you're inclined to say, be careful before you start charging God. 
When you're saying, God doesn't love me, God won't forgive me, God doesn't care about me, God won't help me, God won't be with me. You're doing the same thing these people did. And they provoked him. And as he goes on to say, I was grieved with that generation. And I said, they always err, notice this, in their heart. They fall away, literally, is the language. In their minds. Have you done that? Have I done that? Am I defeated already in my mind, regardless of what I do from this point on? That's what they did. So I swore in my wrath, they will not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, verse 12, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And that's what happens, isn't it? I convince myself I can't. I tell myself there's no way I can be a Christian. That is not going to be for me. It can't happen. No matter how bad I want it. I can't live a life and go to heaven. And I've convinced me up here it's not going to happen. And then in turn, I fall away from God. I depart from God. And you'll notice the way the language says it. In departing from the living God. You know what that's saying? He never left you. Even when you were going through all the doubt and all the I'm not good enough and I can't, He never left you. You left Him. And as He goes on to say here, but exhort one another. Here's the encouragement part I said we would come to. Encourage one another daily while it's called a day. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And that's the point, isn't it? I'm deceived. And sin can be, you know, you got drunk and fornicated all night. And that's what we typically think of. Sin can also be, I just don't believe God loves me. I don't believe God will save me. I don't believe God will really help me defeat this big giant of a whatever it is in my life. That's sin too. And they were deceived about it. We are partakers of Christ, the writer says, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast until the end. And I'm going to stop right there. Because as I was looking at this last night, I said to myself, you know, that's it. When I went down to the front of the building and I got into a baptismal much like this one right here, and Dale dunked me under the water, and I got up saying, I'm going to be a Christian, I'm going to live the life of a Christian the rest of my life. I said it that morning to my mother before I ever left. She came in and said, oh, you're awake? And I said, yeah, I'm going to church this morning. I'm going to be a Christian. And she was like, what? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be a Christian. Rest of my life. That's what I'm doing with my life. That confidence, I had, there wasn't any wavering in that day. There was nothing whatsoever that said, I don't know if I can do it or not, but I'm thinking about it. I wasn't saying that. I wasn't saying that day, I think I'm going to give it a try. No, I was plainly saying, I am going to be a Christian the rest of my life. And at the end of life, I'm going to heaven. And that's what the writer is saying, isn't it? Go back to that childlike confidence that you had, that you had when you said, I believe Jesus is the Son of God and I'm going to be a Christian. Be like Joshua and Caleb. When you look at the story here and you see Caleb, man, let's go right now. 
You know, and Joshua joins into that. As you look down in chapter 14, man, he's trying his best. Verse 6, when it says, Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, they were of them that searched the land. They just rent their clothes. They can't believe what's happening around them. And they start repenting and, you know, just come on, guys. Let's not lose this. But the rest of the people, they would be. You know, if you have to be a Joshua or a Caleb, then be a Joshua or a Caleb. Go to heaven by yourself if that's what it takes. You won't. Don't misunderstand. But be willing to be like these two who refuse to doubt God, refuse to listen to all the negative, refuse to believe it cannot be done, and say, let's go now. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you can be. And God will be with you to help you from now on. Confess your belief. Repent. Be baptized for forgiveness of your sin. Be a child of God. And if you've done that and you look at your life and you say, okay, I, I've made a lot of mistakes. I haven't seized the moment. I need to go back, like the writer was saying to those people there. I need to go back and I need to have that same confidence. And I want to start right now. We'll be glad to pray together with you. Won't you please come while Edward needs to sing a song?